Welcome to the sermon podcast of Grace Presbyterian Church. For more information about our church, please visit our website, gracechurchlaunceston.com. One of the great things about reading scripture, and in particular the Psalms, is that they're often written from the perspective of a person who's not entirely happy. Uh, Many Psalms speak from the place of darkness and depression of suffering. And so they're incredibly useful for we who likewise experience such things. Uh, They teach us how to approach our own situations, how to walk faith with God through them. And so today's psalm is a song and a prayer because that's what psalms are. They're songs, they're prayers, uh, where the emotion that rings through isn't one of joy or happiness, but of sadness, of pain. And at the same time, overwhelming confidence in the Lord. Uh, So this psalm, Psalm 129, looks backward across the history of the people of God and it calls us as God's people to remember that that we are often a people who suffer. We, as it were, are a part of Jesus' people, are likewise in the same boat as Israel were, uh, who were the first recipients of this psalm. Our own story, our own histories as people, as churches, and as the church, is, is often marred by seasons and moments of pain and darkness. And so this psalm comes today to us as good news. It shows us how to, how to approach these things as Christians. The structure of this psalm is twofold, with a hinge in the middle. So verses 1 to 3, we see the past, the afflictions of the people of God. And verses 5 to 8, we see a prayer prayed against God's enemies. And right in the middle, the hinge is the good news that the Lord is righteous and he cuts us free from the cords of the wicked. So let's have a look at verse 1. And as a first point, we see that the righteous Lord is our rescuer. So verse 1, it's a song of ascents. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Ploughmen have ploughed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me from the cords of the wicked. It's a song of ascents. uh, And as it says there in the little um, text at the top, uh, it's a part of a group of psalms, 15 psalms, a little song book for pilgrims along the road, the wrong journey towards Jerusalem. Um, They'd go up there, the the Israelites, to Jerusalem for annual festivals. Uh, We looked at last week Mark's Gospel, and in that particular passage, Mark chapter 10, there were groups of people travelling up to Jerusalem. Well, these are the songs they were singing along their journey. These are the songs they'd sing along the journey. Songs of the faith, songs for the road. And, you know, we've just passed winter solstice, haven't we? Uh, This psalm is kind of a dark psalm. One One of the psalms for the dark depths of winter. There's a dark mood in these verses. The writer looks back and he actually calls Israel to look back, the nation as a whole to look back. He's calling Israel to look back here on a past of darkness. Verse 1, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Derek Kidner in his commentary on the psalm writes this, um, this wonderful little phrase. He says, whereas most nations tend to look back on what they've achieved, Israel reflects here on what she has survived. And yet that's kind of that's right, isn't it? The psalm calls Israel to look back on what she has survived, the great afflictions she's experienced. You know, the mention of youth here, 
um, is a way of calling Israel to look back at um, her time in Egypt. Uh, Hosea chapter uh, chapter 11 says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Looking back to their time of slavery in, in Egypt, great pain and hardship and toil in that time. But their afflictions didn't stop in Egypt, did it? It continued across Israel's history. The whole his, the history of Israel is a history of suffering in many ways. Um, sometimes innocent suffering in, in Egypt, if you like, but often history, a history of suffering because of judgment for their sin as well. And yet if you read the Old Testament, it's a constant Israel were a suffering people. And the story of the Bible is the suffering we see of Israel leads towards the suffering servant, the suffering one, Jesus. Jesus' suffering was different than Israel's suffering in many respects because he suffered on behalf of his people. Jesus suffered scorn. He he bore wounds, scars on his back and his hands and feet, and he bore the punishment for sin instead of his people. Isaiah 53, which we looked at recently at church, it says, by his wounds we are healed. And so in, as Christians in Christ today, we who trust in him, we likewise walk in this sort of um, pathway. It's true of Israel, it's true of the church of Jesus. The whole people of God, Old New Testament, are a suffering people. And so the psalm writer calls us, to look back, to remember and reflect on the past, to look back across the history of the church. And one of the things, one of the applications of Psalms like this and Psalm 124 and others is that we're to learn from the past. Now, uh, we need to be familiar where where we've come from as Christians and as the church. Now, some people think history is boring, Maybe you think history is boring. I'm not entirely sure why, but I get it. Um, if you think history is all dates and obscure events that have no relevance to life. But kids, don't ever think history is boring. It's very important. Because as the saying goes, those who forget the past are bound to repeat it. Uh, we repeat the mistakes of history because we don't know our history. And the psalm teaches us that these things, these things that have happened in the past have great relevance to us today. They're important for us as Christians to think back where we've come from, particularly our spiritual history, not only as people, but as churches, denominations, the church of Jesus. It's the story of God's work in life, isn't it? That's what history is. God, like he did with Israel, continues to lead his people through hard times. He continues to turn evil things around and thwart evil plans. The enemy, he redeems from slavery. He rescues from darkness. That's what God does. You know, if we only only see what's happening in front of us now, God's work is often invisible, isn't it? Don't you think? Uh, We can't see it. But the great gift of time is that we we can see what God does, or at least read a book about it. Um, We can reflect back and see God's providence, God providentially leading his people. 
Now, I've been, over the last week, listening to some podcasts about um, the Presbyterian Church in Australia and over the last 50 years um, about various decisions about leadership in the church. And if I were to understate things, um, it's been tumultuous, to say the least. Uh, the church has, as the church has sought to bring reformed back in line with the scriptures, there has been sin, disunity, fractions, disruptions, both from the church's making and from wider society having an influence in the church. We need to know this stuff. We need to remember this stuff and not pretend and pay white, put white out over the, bar, the, the sins of the past. You know, as we look back, we can see that despite us, despite our failures and sin, God is ever faithful. He's ever faithful. He's always guiding and leading and rescuing and dragging us out of our messes. And time, he does it time and time again. Look back at your youth, O Israel, the psalm says. Look back. You have been greatly afflicted. See the hard times, the persecutions. But then verse 3, the author uses rather graphic imagery for being wounded, doesn't he? Um, like a plower, plowing the field. Um, it's graphic. It's, it's kind of like welts on his back are like furrows in the dirt. You know, he has no shortage of reasons to, to lament here and mourn. The people of God have been oppressed. But what does the psalm do with this? He says, look back at your suffering, Israel. Remember the Lord and trust in him. Remember that God has preserved you. He will continue to do so. So verse 2, it says, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Why hasn't Israel's enemies gained the victory? Because of verse 4. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me from the cords of the wicked. This is really the key verse of the psalm. The Lord is righteous. The Lord will act righteously. He will cut me from the cords of the wicked. God never does wrong. He never leaves the unjust, the, the guilty off the hook. He always does what is right. He'll never hold back from doing what is due, nor will he judge more severely than what is deserved. He deals with equity and fairness. He is faithful to the promises he's made to his people. And so in alignment with his righteous character, God will rescue his people. He has promised that. The righteous one will set his people free. He breaks the cords that bind them. He releases them from the hand of the wicked. And this is as true today as it was back then. If Christians are suffering now, it's not a new thing, is it? Um, Jesus told us to expect uh, persecution. In the 20th century, a terrible wave of persecution went out against the church in China. Do you know this story? Many believers were taken to prison camps and martyred for their faith. Um, it was all designed to squash the church. Uh, however, it had the opposite effect. In 1949... The Communist Party gained power in China uh, and there were about 2 million Christians at that time, many of whom I've read were nominal, that is, they, they were only Christian in name only, sort of cultural Christians. But today, 
in spite of horrendous persecution and immense suffering, the Church of Jesus has grown to over 100 million believers in that country. Why has that happened? Because the Lord is righteous and he has cut them free from the cords of the wicked. Christ preserves his church. There will always be trouble, always be suffering. It's the story of our history, isn't it? From beginning to end, whether it's violence or cultural waves or moods or whatever. And behind all this, there is the opposition of the evil one, the devil. And if the Lord were not with his people, if the Lord were not righteous, the church would wither, it would die. The sufferings would overwhelm. You know, people might think the church is dying out, you know, disappearing. In some places, perhaps the church is smaller than it's been at other times. But on a global scale, that is not true. That Christianity is growing faster than ever. The Lord preserves his people. He never forgets his character. He cuts the cords of the wicked. So we can and should look at what God is doing, looking back and looking how the church has grown and been cared for through hard times. And we need to give God the praise for this. So let's uh, go to a second point here. And we see a prayer for the righteous Lord to turn back his enemies. This is from verse 5. It says, May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill in his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, The blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So what has happened here, the psalmist called Israel to look back at the past, her sufferings, and then apply the truth that God protects them and preserves them to the present. Uh, so verse 5, the psalmist calls on God to turn back those who hate Zion. So Zion, what's that word? That's, a, that's the name of the mountain in Jerusalem in which the temple is built, Mount Zion. Um, so meaning here that those who hate Zion, it's, it's a way of saying those who hate God. You see? And in turn then hate his people. Those who hate Zion. May those people be turned back in shame, the psalm says. So verses 6 and 7, it's a prayer that God's enemies would wither like grass baked in the summer sun. Now, you know what happens with grass in the sun, like grass in my gutter that grows. In summer, it dries up, or grass in your driveway. There's a lack of water and the heat withers up the grass. And so God, please, the psalm writer prays, cause your enemies to wither. Because it often looks like the opposite of that, doesn't it? Is that right? That those who oppose God and the church often look seemingly, anyway, large, important and powerful. The enemies of God can look like they are winning. And although God's people do suffer, the Lord is righteous. He hears our cries and our prayers. However long the enemies of God, enemies of Zion seem to get away with it, they will not get away with it. It's guaranteed. It's a promise that opposition to God and his people will not last forever. Although there is suffering, yes, God will bring down the enemies, however and whenever he decides to do so. God is God. God's enemies are not God. 
And so look at the next image in verse 7. The psalm writer prays that the enemies of Zion won't gather, gra- uh, gather grain. They won't fill their hands with it. And, and it is a picture of futility. Imagine uh, reaping and not harvesting. It's a picture of futility. It's a prayer to curse God's enemies, that their lives will come to nothing. You know, remember Jesus, what Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? You know, opposition to God will not be successful. (laughs) It will come to nothing. To live against God may seem to be successful, but in the end there is no gain. So verse 8, the scene shifts here to an illustration of from everyday life again, another one. Um, and a person here is out and about in the, work, in the field again. Um, and then another person uh, moves by, walks by them while they're working. Um, in that culture, the normal thing was be to greet the other person as, they, as you met them. There's an example of this in the book of Ruth, if you remember the book of Ruth. Uh, where Boaz and his workers greet each other almost with the same words here. The blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And I think there's a lot actually to learn from this idea of blessing each other. Um, there's much to learn from this. We Shouldn't we pray this kind of thing for one another that um, we'd ask God's blessing upon even the person we meet, their day, their, their work, um, that they'd enjoy a fruitful, productive day, a good outcome for their, their labour. God bless you. God be with you. Um, peace be upon you. It's a good thing to say, a good thing to pray for each other. But, but that's not really where the psalm's going. Um, what does the psalm say? May those things not happen <laughs> to your enemies, God. Verse 8, he's saying the opposite. May no one bless those people. May no one pray for them. The psalm writer prays that the wicked will not be blessed. And here we see a crucial idea that we need to to have in deep within us, us, that there's nothing more important in your life than the blessing of God, that God would be blessing you. And if God is with you, if he's blessing you, if you know Christ, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, if you've been made alive with Christ and know his blessing then all will be well with your life, no matter what you're going through. But those who hate God, who hate Zion, if God is, a, God is against those people, you're under his curse and it will not be well. If you hate Zion, you are not on his team. The blessing of God is not on you. You're not giving him the honour and glory and praise. If a person has not come under King Jesus' rule, they're in rebellion. They're not receiving the blessing of God. So what do you think about this psalm? Do you get a little nervous praying these sorts of prayers or thinking about um, enemies in this kind of way? Um, Because it really amounts to a prayer for God to judge, to curse uh, his enemies, those who harm God's people. But perhaps that says more about us and our sensibilities than it does about Scripture. Now, we have to be careful in how we apply the psalm to us in that we're not to take 
revenge or we're not to get back at other people or do things in spite at the person who has wronged us. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and love them. But love and justice, they're not mutually exclusive things. Uh, God is both just and loving. And so to pray this kind of prayer is entirely appropriate. So we pray, yes, that God's enemies would repent. At least uh, we should pray that, that they'd come to know Jesus and be born again. That God would do right in that kind of way. But also we can pray that God would do right in this other kind of way. That the righteous Lord would do right in stopping wickedness from happening. To pray this kind of prayer against God's enemies is to be zealous for the glory of God. It's not about getting back at someone. It's to be about what God loves and what God hates. Hating what God hates and loving what God loves. And so if uh, the church in some part of the world is feeling the heat, is being persecuted, then it is right for us to call on God to remove that opposition from that, that church, those people, and from us, if it be the case. For example, if God forbid, these, you know, we'd feel, if God forbid our country were being attacked by a foreign nation, we would feel angry, wouldn't we? We'd feel strongly about that. Or if, for example, someone in your family were in danger, you would leap to protect them, wouldn't you? But if we, and if we love Christ and we love the people of God who are suffering and afflicted, then it is right to pray that God would act. It is right to re- pray that God would remove that opposition because we love God and love the people of God. This is what the psalm is calling us to do. To love what God loves and hate what God hates. Righteous Lord, please preserve us from harm. Protect us from the works of the evil one. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, lead us from temptation. God will do what is right. He will lead us through trouble. He would act in righteousness towards us. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, which we looked at, uh, which Noel read out before. So he said, Um, Verse 6, God is just, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to to you who are troubled and to us as well. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Uh, It's a prayer for justice there. It's a promise for justice. There will be justice. And to pray these psalms, these kind of prayers, it's a good thing. About love, about justice, about God's glory. So, you and I, we have many reasons, many needs that ought to drive us to the Lord uh, in prayer. And so, we need these kind of psalms to help us, um, to help give words to when we are in experiencing these situations for ourselves, or when we see another church experiencing these situations, or things like that. When we experience the dark things in life, and we will experience them in a, in a broken and fallen world. You know, we're not yet at home, are we? In the words of Hebrews, we're looking for a better country, a home that Christ will make for us when he returns to this world. And so we, why we wait for that day, we have very, uh, we're very much in need of these kinds of psalms. We need these words to say, prayers to pray when there are griefs and troubles in our lives in the world. 
We need to be able to pray to God about our own failings, our own sins, our own fragility in the face of sickness, to be preserved in the face of opposition. These prayers, this, this, these verses bring home the promises of the righteous Lord for exactly the times when we feel pressure, when we're worn out, when we're downcast. The Lord is righteous. He will act and he will keep us. And one day he will completely vanquish evil. He will cut finally the cords of the wicked and will be free. He's shown us that he will do this. He is guaranteed this because he's already worked the victory through the Lord Jesus who accomplished the great victory over evil, didn't he, at the cross. Um, And one day that salvation will be fully realised. You know, when sickness and those hard things, death, evil will be finally removed forever. And there'll be no more need to pray prayers like this, psalms like this, for any present trouble or future problem. Those things would be in the past. And we can look back then and rejoice at what the righteous Lord has done. But in the meantime, uh, we trust and wait and pray. And so let me, in in response to this psalm, um, lead us now in a prayer of, I guess... You can call it a prayer of lament um, because in different ways we've experienced troubles and hardship for the sake of Christ and really just living in a world which is broken, a world marred by sin and, and just how it isn't, how it's not meant to be. So let's uh, take these things to the Lord in prayer now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you very much for Psalm 129 and we we acknowledge lord this world is not how it should be and we feel it Uh, we hear about natural disasters war personal tragedies we've all been affected in various ways and we look at the church lord around the world and we hear persecution of violence and that our brothers and sisters are being oppressed Our Father, we yearn for Jesus to return and to right all wrongs and renew all things. Lord, we feel deeply in our souls the pain, the shame, the hurt and fear. Please, Lord, free us from the chaos, bring healing to grief and we come to you in faith, in trust and hope. We know that you hear our cries when we don't even have words to say them because you've sent your son to die in our place. You've removed our guilt, Lord, and you've given us new life in him. Help us, Lord, to place our trust in you even while we wait for that final day, even while your church experiences suffering today. Come, Lord Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, sing the last song and then please remain standing for the blessing at the end of the song. Eternal King, let's sing this together.